Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas, and the episode you're about to hear was recorded at All About Women in 2020. Whatever country or culture you belong to, gendered abuse and violence occurs across the world. In Australia, one in four women has been abused by a male partner. In Pakistan, so-called honour killings, where women are killed by male relatives, continue to be perpetrated. But even though there might be cultural differences, the root causes are still the same. It's about control and intimidation. Australia's Jess Hill and Pakistan's Sanam Maha are both journalists who have written about gendered abuse. In this revealing conversation, they come together in a cross-cultural discussion to think about male entitlement and female vulnerability. The event is hosted by Gina Rushton. Um, I would like to acknowledge that we meet today on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present and to say that sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I'd also like to acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are 32 times more likely to be hospitalised from family violence and 10 times more likely to be killed as a result of a violent assault. Welcome to this session. Um, my name's Gina Rushton. I'm a reporter at BuzzFeed News where I cover issue that, issues that affect Australian women, um, like reproductive rights and gendered violence. But my, I have the enviable job today of hosting um, this conversation with two incredible women. Uh, Sanam Maher is a journalist based in Karachi, Pakistan. Um, a woman like her is her first book and it's a forensic account of the life and death of Kentil Baloch. Pakistan's first social media celebrity who was murdered by her brother. For more than a decade, she's covered stories on Pakistan's art and culture, business, religious minorities and women. Her work has appeared in BuzzFeed, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Caravan, Roads and Kingdoms. Jess Hill is an investigative journalist who has been writing about domestic violence since 2014. Her book, See What You Made Me Do, is an utterly important and long overdue exploration of Australia's domestic abuse crisis and the perpetrators and the systems which perpetuate it. Prior to this, she was a producer for ABC Radio, a Middle East correspondent for the Global Mail and an investigative journalist for Background Briefing. She was listed in Foreign Policy's Top 100 Women to Follow on Twitter. You should follow her. And her, reporting on <laughs> and her reporting on domestic violence has won Walkley Awards, an Amnesty International Award, Our Watch Awards, and her book was just shortlisted for the Stella Prize. Please mm-hmm. welcome these two incredible women. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to go through the statistics on this because I think you're all pro- probably really well versed in this. Um, and statistically speaking, some of you may, um, some of the things we talk about in this conversation in this conversation might be all too familiar. And on that, I just want to say, if you want to, you know, zone out and stare at the view or go and get a breath of fresh air, that please feel absolutely more than welcome to do that. Um, so the. I want to start with a, th- a thing that's sort of in both of your books, and that is shame. Um, I'll start with you, Sanam, because your book really centres on um, a woman whose killer, her, her brother, almost immediately admitted that his, um, his motivation um, or 
he felt comp compelled to commit this crime, I guess, because he felt that his sister, Candil, had brought shame on their family. Um, and, and even when she was killed, there were people who said that she'd brought shame on Pakistan. What role do you think shame plays in violence against women in Pakistan? Well, her brother... Um you're right, he killed her and he sort of, he didn't just announce it immediately at a press conference after he was arrested. He went back to their ancestral village and um, he killed her the night before, mm -hmm. drove back there and then when he got there, went to the main sort of square where the market was and rode around over there and told everyone what he'd done because he wanted them to know. Mm -hmm. And he was quite happy about it because these were people who had for so long been saying to him, you know, your sister is behaving this way, she's doing these things online, she's posting these photos and videos, she's dancing around with sort of in her underwear and you should be ashamed of yourself. Why aren't you doing anything about it? And then he needed them to know that he had done something about it. And when he was arrested and there was a press conference, he, you know, he was asked by one journalist, like, why did you kill your sister? What happened? And he said, well, you all saw what was happening. You all mm. saw what she was doing on Facebook. And there were no follow-up questions. It was almost like, yeah, we all saw, and we all saw that something needed to be done. Mm. And you did something about it. So it wasn't just, you know, the fact that this was this, you know, a young woman, a 26-year-old woman, who for so long had been um, judged and trolled and critiqued for why are you posting this picture? Why are you doing this? Um, getting rape threats and death threats. And mm -hmm. in all these TV interviews she was doing, like the interviewers are constantly confused and they're asking her, why don't you just stop? Why don't mm -hmm. you just stop posting these videos? Why do you need to be a social media celebrity? Like, why don't you just kind of just shut down your account or your page? And she said, well, why should I? Why mm -hmm. are you turning up and looking at those things if you don't like what I'm doing? And you can see visibly they're confused by what kind of woman doesn't back down? What kind of woman mm -hmm. doesn't feel shame? How do you not read all the rape threats or the death threats and move back? So it was shame for her, for yeah. her character yeah. and being judged. But it was also for her family being told, you know, what does this say about you that you're allowing this to yeah. happen? And it just sort of set the scene to make this murder take place, but then to also have the murder accepted and celebrated <laughs> mm. and praised by many people. And almost, you know, it was almost like, well, what else did you expect? Like, this is always what was going to happen. This was inevitable. Mm. That, yeah, his expectations yeah. kind of matched those of, yeah, of other yeah, people's. Yeah. yeah. Um, Jess, you've written that when men feel powerless and ashamed, it's their entitlement to power that fuels their humiliated fury and it drives them to commit twisted, violent acts. Can you tell us a bit about what humiliated fury is and, and what you've learned about it? Yeah, so I think it's like it's all in the same ballpark, this sort of like the toxicity of shame and the way that it works through cultures. But interesting thing, I think what you're saying, Sanam, is that like shame is actually like quite acknowledged. It's, mm. it's actually quite front of mind and people use that term really freely in Pakistan. It frames these murders, these like honour killings. Um, whereas here, I guess the humiliated fury that, that I'm talking about is more... A, um, it's a type of shame that has been bypassed 
and is very deep and unacknowledged um, in in the um, in the violent man and uh, or the controlling man. And essentially, what you're looking at is so like if we're you know we live in patriarchy, and so men and women are socialized in particular ways. And um, it's there's been a lot of conversation lately about how men are socialized to be strong and independent and logical, etc. But what they're also you know socialized is to be to to not feel grief, shame, fear, because all of those things are vulnerabilities and they take them away from being able to be independent and strong and logical. So in that way, those feelings are totally like bypassed. And my partner, who's a, um, who's a psychotherapist who's here today, he'll say, like, he'll be in a, in a room with, with men and he'll say, so what is that making you feel? And, and they can't name a feeling. Like this, it's like, so a lot of the time when these feelings are coming up, when they, when they are feeling grief and fear and rage and, and, and all those things, instead of feeling like, okay, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to feel that and I'm going to work through it, it's just bypassed and instead it's either blankness, like a feeling of total numbness, or it can be obsession and then anger. So what you see is with these guys a lot of the time in, um, in domestic abuse, especially in coercive control, is total preoccupation to the point of, like, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, where enforcement of trivial demands, total, like, surveillance of the perimeter. And there's this sense that this... Because they have bypassed those feelings of shame and grief and they're so deeply buried, their actual view on the world becomes totally distorted because they can't none of it, they can't work any of it up here. Mm. It's all sort of like back here in the crocodile brain. Yeah. And so what they start seeing is like, you know, what they might see their partner liking a Facebook post of another man and they're like, she's having an affair. Because their, their view is entirely distorted by shame. And shame-obsessed people, people who have, like, just totally crushed it down and have not dealt with their shame, shame-obsessed people hear ridicule where none was intended. Yeah. And so when they get told by their wife, like, no, I don't feel like having sex, it's like, you're rejecting me mm. and now I must explode or I must mm. impose myself on you because that cannot be let to stand. Um, so this humiliated fury idea is this, like, where you have someone who feels like, they have been defied and disrespected. But instead of, like, lots of us feel defied and disrespected. I mean, this whole festival is about to, you know, being defied and disrespected. But it's about when that comes, when entitlement comes in and says, I should never have to feel defied and disrespected. Mm. And in order to stop that happening, I am entitled to use control or violence to stop mm. you doing it. Mm. And that's, and it's amazing how many, I talk a lot to magistrates particularly, and so many of them come up to me and say, humiliated fury, that's what I've been seeing in my courtroom. And it's really put a term to what I see these guys doing every day. Mm. It's a terrifying mix. That, that, I mean, that entitlement mixed with that com no, lack of complete self-reflection, which is... Exactly. You know. And that feeling that you're in a room with your partner mm. and your kids and all you can see is just your rage mm. and your need and they are utterly invisible. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sanam, you told me that there's a question you're often asked about Kandil's death, and particularly in the UK and, and even since you've been in Australia, um, that's, that's kind of frustrating and you feel a bit of a red herring with this discussion. Yeah. Can I ask you what the question is and why it frustrates you? Um, so I get asked, because I, the book is about, you know, a woman who was um, killed for, because the things that she was 
doing supposedly brought shame or dishonor to her family, and then something was done to correct that and to enable that family to reintegrate into their community as no longer shameless or, you know, to say, okay, we did something about it and we're okay now and sort of order has been restored. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, the important question there is, you know, what what kind of place enables something like that to happen? How complicit are we when someone is killed in this way and it is so widely accepted and sort of the response is to say, oh, she had it coming or we should have seen this coming or whatever it is. But the question that I get asked a lot um, and I've, I've been asked a lot here in Australia as well mm-hmm. is a lot of people will bring religion into it. And Mm -hmm. so they see this as a Muslim problem or they see this as, oh, in this Islamic country. And I I don't necessarily, I mean, to me, my faith is important to me. And when Mm -hmm. I will answer those kinds of questions, I can always tell when someone's willing to hear me out Mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. In a lot of instances, they're not. In a lot of instances, what they don't see or what they can't connect with is that these are problems that exist in so many places. These are problems Mm -hmm. that we're all dealing with in our own countries, in our own cultures. They may be called different things. I'm calling it an honor killing. Jess may just call it a murder. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're the same. They revolve around the same anxieties. They're symptoms of the same problems. We may be talking about it in different ways. And so when I get asked about, the last time I was asked about religion, it was really interesting because the woman who was, you know, actually moderating the session, she asked me, well, you know, do you think Kandil was a feminist? And I said, well, yes, of course. Mm. And she said, really? But like here you have this like Muslim woman taking her clothes off for everyone to see. Mm. And what kind of feminist does that? And I was just thinking, well, there's two women on this stage right now. And one of them is shaming women and it's not the Muslim woman. (laughs) So how is this like an Islam problem? How is this? Like, I I feel like when you bring religion into the question, into Mm -hmm. the conversation, that's where for a lot of people it stops. And in Mm -hmm. Pakistan, and I think around the world as well, if a Muslim man or a woman does something and suddenly something terrible, and then they turn around and say, well, that's my religious belief, Mm -hmm. the conversation stops there. Mm -hmm. No one is actually questioning them further and saying, well, where does it say that? Mm -hmm. Or what is sort of making you... Because it's just religion that's been weaponized and it's been sort of misinterpreted to excuse a whole number of problems. Mm -hmm. And... In Pakistan, what tends to happen a lot as well is people will say, why do these women need to come out for these marches? Why do you need to talk about these things? I'll get asked, why do you continue to talk about this woman? Or like, why are you talking about, you know, this terrible thing that happened to her outside Pakistan? And that's what the world knows about us. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of, when we're talking about shame, there's also shaming there. Mm -hmm. But... And they'll always say, like, Islam gives all these rights to women. And I'm like, well, that's great, but we don't live in a perfect Muslim society. So Mm -hmm. those rights can exist Mm -hmm. in theory, but they're not necessarily playing out. And the thing that's very frustrating is when you come to sort of other places and religion is sort of brought into the picture in that very aggressive way, Mm -hmm. there's no way that I can then begin to sort of even explore the nuance and talk Mm -hmm. about well, these things are frustrating. When conversations are shut down because of this in my own country, that's the frustrating thing. So you're always explaining and you're always correcting a bias and not saying, well, look at all these connections in our two very separate cultures. And and even within the same culture, I mean, when you're talking about nuance, I think that something was really interesting, um, you know, in this one religious family is that her, her father's 
you know, reaction to all of this um, and her brothers were, com yeah. were completely, obviously, different. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so this is, um, you know, when this young woman was killed, when Kandil was killed, the amazing sort of, the thing that was so different in this case is in a lot of honor-killing cases, because it's usually a family that's colluding, um, and the way that the legislation sort of existed at the time, it enabled a family member to forgive the perpetrator of the crime. So the victim's family can sort of, um, essentially what would end up happening is they forgive you. You don't even have to spend a day in prison. And I think that's why Kandil's brother was also very quick to admit that he had done this. Um, mm. And in her family, what ended up happening was the family sort of distanced themselves from the brother. So, and the parents turned around and said, this is terrible. We want the worst possible punishment for him. Um, she was so dear to us. She was like, better than all of our sons because they were very close to her and they mm. did, like she financially supported them. She took care of them. The problem there though is, I think it is such an unimaginable position to be put in as a parent, yes. you know, where your child has done something, you've lost one child, mm. and you can say that you want, and I think a lot of people were very happy when they saw uh, you know, the parents saying, oh, we want punishment. And when the case got covered internationally, that was the thing they focused on. Mm. Pakistani man stands up for his daughter, yeah, like, right. oh. Um, but the sad thing is that when you see that punishment playing out and it's your child, you've lost one child and now the other one is going away for life in prison, yeah. you turn around and the parents did turn around and say, no, we, we don't want this or yeah. like just let him go or can we not work something out? Mm. And people were very disappointed in them for that but it, mm. is, it just shows you that we don't necessarily understand how these really complicated sort of questions of respect or honor or shame or, you know, how do these play out in families? How do we make sense of mm. them? And mm. it's not as straightforward as, oh, just put this person in jail and, okay, it's mm. dealt with. Yeah, and what does yeah. justice look like in yeah, these situations? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think, Gina, just on what you were mm. saying then about, you know, the use of culture as an excuse or culture as a reason or as a way of us otherizing this type of violence. Mm. Like, I remember speaking with this woman who runs um, men's behaviour change programs and has done since the 80s. And she said to me that she would, like, often she'd start, there'd be a totally multicultural group of men and they would all start with their excuses, then often their culturally sanctioned excuses yeah. as to why they'd done what they did. And um, by the end of the session, everyone from the Pakistani subcontinental men to the Anglo men, basically the excuse came down to one thing, which was entitlement. Yeah. And everyone's got their different reasons for being able to claim the entitlement. Yeah. And yeah. we, you know, and it's easy for us to otherize that entitlement yeah. as like, oh well, that's an Islamic thing. Yeah. But actually, in the minds of all these men, it all came back to one thing. By the end, they all realized that they were exactly the same. Yeah. Mm. And perhaps this actually <laughs> answers my next question, because I was going to say... That must be so supportive, like a group of entitled men yeah. <laughs> from so many... Like, what a nice We can all go group. and have a drink like, and talk about how entitled yeah. we are. That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. Great. Sounds, yeah. sounds like... It's the bridging hell. bond. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess on that, just there are a lot of stereotypes in Australia about who commits violence, and the fact is that... Um, to quote a Queensland police officer, might have driven them to it or exacerbated its frequency or severity. But what are we getting wrong in the assumptions that we make about who is capable of violence? Is it as simple as, you know, they're entitled? 
Um, no, and I think entitlement is also a very complicated notion because, yeah, we do have... And it's it's easy, like, on a panel like this to simplify things. We were talking about it before. It's, you know, sometimes you've got, like, 30 seconds to sum up something that really should take an hour to explain. Um, and entitlement is is not straightforward. So entitlement, yes, we've had, like, centuries where women were chattel for men and, and women had no legal rights once they got married. That has a long tail and we continue to see, you know, um, the extent of that today but also you have trauma-based entitlement and we've got a lot of a lot of men and women who are also abusive in relationships um, come from a background of trauma not all but but a lot and that trauma-based entitlement I've seen come up a lot which is like I was I never had control when I was a kid so I'm never going to be put in that position again I will always be in control or I was treated really badly fuck you I'm damaged deal you know, and so there's entitlement that works at all different levels, um, and sometimes I think we're a little bit sort of two-dimensional about it. Um, but so I think in terms of like who is doing this, everybody is capable of doing it. Um, you know that we, in, especially in intimate relationships, the best and very worst of us comes to the fore, right? I think what stops us from being the worst that we can be is where we where we stop seeing ourselves as just entitled to spew our shit on someone and where we start seeing and we see their humanity and we like bring forward that empathy and compassion even in situations where we feel like we don't want to <laughs> um, so but really this can I, I just don't this does, you know, as Rosie Batty said, and it is completely true, it doesn't matter how nice your house is, this is possible everywhere. It's not a, a, a product of poverty, although poverty exacerbates it. It's not a product of substance abuse, although that exacerbates it, et cetera, et cetera. This is basically a... It's a fundamental mistake that was made in our culture a few thousand years ago, which was the idea that you have the right to have power over other people, this fundamental value that we have of power over, and that that's actually most valued. That you, If you're seeking equality, that is really devalued. You're not going to be the one that gets the promotion. Like, look at the way we manage each other in the workplace and the level of power over that is played out there to such a damaging degree that some people feel like their lives are utterly ruined by bullying or just by people who are sort of like sadistic um, in terms of how they manage people. This is being played out everywhere, at every level of our society. It's just that in intimate relationships, it is supercharged by the need that, get, that, that builds up around intimacy and the way that we are totally... We can, we can feel totally at the whim of someone because all of our hopes and dreams, our fears about abandonment, all that stuff just you know, comes into, into one space that is private, invisible to a lot of people, where we're able to sort of be our worst person and almost nobody sees it. And we can maintain who we are to the rest of the world with no one really understanding what we're like to that person. And I don't... I will freely admit that I have done things in my relationship that I really hope no one knows about. Like, you know, or spoken to my partner in a way that I would be absolutely mortified for people to hear. And that is the case, I think, for probably every single one of us. So I'm not suggesting that we're on that, that we are all capable of some of the worst type of abuse like what we saw in Brisbane. Obviously, those people are far, far down the spectrum. But to otherize domestic abuse as something that happens to other people or that is not something that is fundamental to all of our relationships as a possibility and a potentiality is that's what we get wrong. Mm. Um, and I'd just like to also just really make the quick point. 
again on that cultural thing and where we say, oh, well, there's honour killings and they're culturally sanctioned, isn't that terrible? We have this real thing with attitude, behaviour and consistency in Australia Mm -hmm. that we state an attitude like children are sacred and we must protect them at all costs and then the behaviour of how we actually treat children is completely different. And in our family law system, we have a situation where children can go to the family law court and disclose abuse, have doctors, teachers, police corroborate that and they can be ordered by the court to live or see the parent that terrifies them. If they try to run away, the court can get the federal police to track them down and return them to that abusive parent. That's not a society that values children. Mm. That is a society that has made it absolutely impossible for a child to leave violence. Mm. You know, so I think at least... In Pakistan, there are open conversations about this. Here, well, <laughs> enough. About, but they make a law where they're like, yeah. okay, we're going to make yeah. honour killings yeah. illegal. Yeah. And there's people, yeah. there are people talking about it. Yeah. We don't even admit to it. Mm. That's, yeah, actually, that's a really great point. I think even just recognising that there is that problem. And unfortunately with us, I think when we sit and we take stock when these terrible things happen and when we're forced to say, okay, well, what exactly is going on here? And mm. like Kandil's case, was one such instance where a lot of young women turned around and said, what exactly is going on here? And, you know, coming back to control, the way that I saw control in this case really surprised me when I was dealing with the story of someone who had been, like this terrible thing had happened because her family had sought to sort of control her behavior. Mm. And then when I traveled to her village to start sort of doing interviews with people who had known her or family members, friends, like as you're driving up to that village, you pass the last town. And I remember thinking, like I was so struck that all the billboards I was seeing, it's the first time in my life that I saw ads for detergent and there were just men there, like in Mm. the ads, there were no women. And then when you start looking around you and you start noticing, yeah, there's not many women on, I had to go there with two men who were from that area. Mm. It's the first time in the entire time I've been reporting around the country that I had to be there with people from there that allowed me that access. And one of the guys who was with me I pointed out the thing about, you know, the the billboards and he said, yeah, there's, you know, my village is not too far from here and over there they don't give the woman shoes. And I was like, what does that mean? Like you don't give them shoes? And it was for him, it was so obvious. He said, well, think about it. Like if you walk outside your house and you're not wearing shoes, where are you going to look? You're always going to be looking down. You're not going to look up. You're not going to look around you. You're never going to take in the world around you. You're not going to look at any man around you. Mm. And I just thought that's, like, I had never even imagined mm. control playing out in those so ways. tactically also, like, mm. and so, consciously. And so mm. simple, as mm. simple as you don't have shoes. Mm. So the ways that it plays out sometimes as well is mm. I think we haven't even begun to understand some of those ways. And also, how do you begin to even unpack that? How mm. do you begin to have conversations about that? Mm. I might bring us to a hopeful question. <laughs> um, um, when you when you had some issues when you published your book yeah. uh, with Strokists and there were some yeah. kind of yeah. issues there, can you tell me about kind of yeah. what happened? Yeah, uh, so my book actually came out in South Asia first. And in Pakistan, unfortunately, actually fortunately, I guess, we don't have platforms like Amazon um, or those sort of big retailers. You're really dependent on um, like a handful, three or four 
uh, large booksellers to kind of get your book out there, um, to do events, to sort of publicize it. And I was, like, in all of these conversations before the book was coming out, like, people were being really sort of, like, shady about it, not really lining stuff up. And then in one meeting, uh, a guy at a book sell, like a bookshop, he turned around and he said, look, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you hadn't put her name in the title and you hadn't put her face on the cover, we would have put your book in the window. We would have publicized it. But we have families coming in here. And I thought, well, that's great. I mean, I should tell my publisher we should have talked to you before deciding the title and the art. <laughs> but I just... promise this was a hopeful question. No, no, it But it's... So, I mean, I ended up because a lot of people who really, like, especially young women, young women, like, we deeply cared about Kandil and everything that had happened to her. And so they were buying the book and they kept asking me about events. And I just shared on my, I think it was Instagram, that, you know, this is why we're not having events. And a lot of universities were canceling events. I would get interviewed by people and the interview wouldn't run because somewhere along the line, an editor had decided, we don't want to have anything to do with this woman. We're not printing anything about her. Mm. Um, it feels great when you do like a two-hour chat and then mm. nothing. Um, but I shared that. And one woman reached out to me and she said, you know what, like, I'll pay for you to come to my city. She lived in the capital and she said, I'll pay for you to come to Islamabad and let's just do it at my house. Like, let's open this up and we can share it as widely as you want or keep it as small as you want. But there's a lot of people I know who want to talk about it. And I was yeah. like, okay. And so I traveled and I went and she opened her home up to strangers and strangers who we didn't know how they felt about Kandil. Mm -hmm. We didn't mm -hmm. know how... Because I would also get some angry messages sometimes and things like that. And she just opened her home up. And then that started a thing where all these other women reached out. And, like, they had nothing to do with me. They had nothing... Like, we didn't know each other. But they would be like, I will buy you a ticket. Just come to this place. I'm opening up my home. Let's, you know, have just... And people turning up to just talk about, they didn't want to be talking about it online. They wanted to be there. They wanted to chat mm -hmm. about, you know, everything that had happened. And then another really amazing thing started up because, I mean, going back to what that guy said to me about having her face on the cover, where um, a guy actually shared a picture. He'd gone for like a trek up north mm -hmm. and there were these mountains in the background and he took a picture of the book and the mountains were there and he said, I just wanted to have Kandil in this space mm -hmm. and to have her out in public because she'd really been erased. I mean, these women had made this beautiful mural of her. The mural was sort of defaced. There mm -hmm. was, you know, places were hesitant to run stuff, like publish stuff about her. or And there was this need to see her in a public place, mm -hmm. um, to not eventually have her Facebook page removed or shut down or whatever. And so then when this guy shared this picture, that started a new thing where I think we're up to like 17 countries now where these young Pakistanis have just taken pictures of the book wherever they live. Like, even here in Sydney, someone came to the opera house and took a picture of the book there. <laughs> That's awesome. Because they were like, we like seeing her name here. We like yeah. seeing her face here. And that means so much to us. And mm. I never thought that it would sort of take off in that way. And yeah, so that's, that's it incredible. was a happy story, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and on, on that hopeful note, Jess, what, what um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that your book was incredibly 
you know, it's a, it's a really heavy thing to write. Um, what gave you hope when you were writing the book? Um, I think, you know, it's like Rebecca Solnit says, like you hold hope and despair in two hands at the same time mm -hmm. and that never was any issue being dealt with in a way that both things were not totally live, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes hope was hard to hard to come by and sometimes I just felt that hope was even futile or felt annoyed by my sense of hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then also, you know, coming across so many things that, that, or so many strategies that were being used in various countries to confront domestic abuse where, especially where communities were coming together with the justice system and collaborating in a way that was totally reframing the way that they not just handled domestic abuse but all types of crime. It was like, this is the future, right? And this, you know, what we're coming to with the domestic abuse crisis, with so many different crises that are converging, is, is realising that the way that we have done things for a long time is unsustainable, right? And so the way that we need to do things as an antidote to that is about collaboration, is about community, is about working together, breaking down silos. And I guess what was amazing is that like about halfway through writing the book, um, like I'd been sort of hearing, you know, obviously the conversation in Australia is very much about gender inequality is the yeah. reason that domestic abuse happens um, and that to fix it we need to address gender inequality. And for me I was just like, oh, it doesn't quite nail it. You know, gender inequality doesn't doesn't explain enough about why are men being socialised like this or why are they ending up like this. And I started reading about patriarchy and I'm like, can't say that because, like, you know, people will think I'm a mad femo or, you know, no man will ever read this book. Like, I don't want to out myself. And, um, and, and so, so I was sort of really... I didn't know what to do. I felt like I was really stuck. And then about... I think it was, what is it, 2016 or was it 2017 when, um, when Me Too mm. went viral um, in October? And suddenly within the space of a few months, like, everyone's talking about patriarchy and yeah. there's, like, op-ed columns, people are having dinner parties talking about patriarchy, people in offices talking about patriarchy. So I was like, oh, now I can't not talk about patriarchy. All right, let's go. Um, but what it allowed was that actually we're able to frame the whole societal issue mm. that's not gender inequality is one symptom of mm. patriarchy and the way that patriarchy organises and develops us and changes us and moves us away from what is sustainable and whatever we can say close to natural um, or what has become before patriarchy, which is balance, right? Mm. It moves us away from balance towards the idea, the false idea that autonomy and independence is the best way to live and that actually having emotional attachments is like, it's kind of a weakness, mm. you know. Um, so when I was able to actually write about patriarchy and then start actually investigating what, is there like an alternative? And not just is there a matriarchy, because that's actually just another form of power over. We're not talking about like finding who was in power. Yeah. Is there an alternative to the society we live in? And the last chapter I wrote was the Indigenous chapter. Mm. And finding what the amount of work that went in to emotional attachments and relationships in Indigenous society before we came along and said, oh, what you're doing is so stupid. Here's some civilization for you. Um, you know, the fact of attending to children, bringing them in until they're age three, the whole thing about, like, attachment parenting, all that stuff, that was just natural in the culture, right? Mm -hmm. And one anthropologist who I like to quote 
W.E.H. Stanner, he said, you know, the kind of complex set of social relationships that existed in Indigenous culture was a unique achievement that was on par with the achievement of European parliamentary governance. Like, that, that it was such an incredible... Like, why did they sustain for 65,000 years? Like, there's a reason, you know? Mm -hmm. And what we then brought in was something that was atomized and we, we basically colonized that way of thinking to say that what you're doing is wrong and we're, you need to we, and, we, and we tried to smash you know 65,000 years of that development but what the, so that's not a hopeful part but the hopeful part is that this is actually not natural mm. that domestic abuse is not just a natural feature of human relationships mm. it's something that can be avoided through a society that that, you know, that values balance over power over. Mm. And that is something that is possible. And we need to be able to imagine being able to create that world again because that's the only thing that's ever worked. Feminists in the 1850s had to be able to imagine a world that was utterly different to the one they lived in, where they could divorce, where they could have rights. They had no reason to believe that was possible, but they did believe it was possible and they moved towards it. Part of the reason they moved towards it is because actually... Native Americans already had it and they could see it and they could picture it. That's what we need to be able to do. We need to be able to picture the future as something that is different to now and that that's possible. Mm -hmm. And so that's what, that's what gave me hope. It's like every time we talk about this, we move closer to a different future. Yeah. Um, actually, this is sort of relevant to that, to that idea, that sort of perpetual idea of violence being inevitable. Um, that's something that we just, you know, have to live with. Uh, one of the main culprits, obviously, um, perpetuating that idea is the media mm. and the way we frame these things. We're all journalists who've reported on gendered violence. There's, there's a, you know, a pr pretty active conversation right now, um, especially after... Uh, Hannah Clark and her three children were murdered. Um, there was a Fox Sports headline that read, ex-NRL player Rowan Baxter dies alongside his three kids, estranged wife in Brisbane car fire tragedy. The Daily Mail wrote, ex-footy star who died in burning car showered kids with love. Um, Which is not even objectively true. Like there's yeah. actually video, foot video footage of that not happening. Yeah. So... So you've you've landed here in Australia in the in the midst of all this um, media coverage, and there was this part of your book that I just could not stop thinking about, um, where the the first journalist who kind of arrives on the scene when Kendall's been been murdered, and he he gets this tip, he turns up at the house, and he there's a photographer there, and, the, and it basically he tells the photographer to go in, and he takes a photo of her body as it's being forensically examined, and that photo then goes viral. Um, I'm wondering, you know, I guess how you, how you both feel about how journalists are going in 2020, you know, how can we do better? Because <laughs> we obviously can. I think, so in my case, just with the journalist who did take the picture of the body, I really understood what was going on over there, why he had that sort of instinct to do that. Um, I mean, we're, I'm in a place where, you know, with regional language papers, it is really routine to see pictures of women's bodies. Mm. Something terrible has happened and that picture will be there. Mm. I found it interesting that, you know, we're very comfortable and we're okay with seeing a dead woman. We find it very difficult to see a woman who's, you know, a sexy woman or mm. like a woman asking for your attention or your interest. We can't stomach that. Mm. Um, and, you know, in the case of this reporter, 
I understood because I was in a place that I felt deeply uncomfortable being in where this terrible thing has happened and you're there in that home, in that place where this woman has been killed, you're asking these questions. Mm -hmm. And what does tend to happen is you are, at least for me, this was the case. This was the first murder that I'd covered. It was the first sort of crime of this nature. And I was very relieved that I had that access, that I was able to be there, that I was able to talk to these people who were telling me terrible things. Mm -hmm. But you're so glad to get that because you know it's all going to add to the work. Right. And so you're in that space where you're not thinking, oh my God, I wish I wasn't here. You're thinking, thank God I'm here. Like I got it and I'm here and I will be able to understand this. Mm -hmm. In the case of this reporter, he's dealing with a situation where his producers are calling him nonstop yeah. and there's five people behind him mm -hmm. that are ready and willing to take that picture and it's his job on the line. Mm -hmm. And as long as we have headlines like that and we have people clicking on those stories, because I'm sure a lot of people did, yeah. as long as you have that, and you're in a situation where you're just thinking, I'm so glad I'm on the first on the scene. I'm so glad that body is right in front of me. I'm so, you're relieved, right? And mm -hmm. it's only later when I spoke to him and I wasn't angry with him. I didn't judge him for it at all because this young man, he's like a 24 year old. Yeah. It's his first sort of job. And he was, he thought about it after. Mm. And I know what that feels like. Like even with the book, I get to come here. I get to sit in these amazing spaces but I'm doing it because something terrible has happened. Mm. So I think it's it, a lot of the onus is also on the audience. Stop reading those stories. Stop clicking on those things. It's, mm. it's a money-making business. Eventually, they'll move back. But, mm. yeah. I've got plenty more questions, but I think not clicking on Daily Mail stories is a great place to it go. Is. <laughs> um, so we can open it up to quest, uh, questions from the audience. Um, there, there will be people coming around with microphones. Yeah. So if you if you want to put your hand up, I'm gonna we all reserve the right as Tony Jones does to take something as a comment and not a question, but we really prefer questions. So, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Hi, my name's Sam. <laughs> Thank you both so much for sharing. That was amazing to hear. Um, we spoke a bit about... You spoke, not me. In my mind, I was speaking about it. <laughs> you Come spoke on. a lot about, um, yeah, entitlement. And um, I'm absolutely saturated with it at the moment. And I'm always uh, coming from a culture where I've been surrounded by that sort of entitlement for a long time. And how do you have small interactions with that involve entitlement? Like, how do you deal with it sort of every day or, or you know, as a reporter, as a, as a writer or as a partner? What are some of the things, I don't know, that you've learnt that has helped you deal with that in the moment? Mm. Mm. <laughs> I mean, as a reporter, honestly, I got to the point where I was like, I am not going to talk to another man unless I'm paid to do so. <laughs> like, I got to that point where it's just... That's um, novel. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, like, it was four months and 125 interviews jammed in there. And I was really like, I have talked to too many men in this time, and mm -hmm. I'm done. 
Like, mm. pay me and I'll do it. But mm. no, other than that, no. There's some life advice. <laughs> Just like any man who wants to tell me, here's the piggy bank, right. Um, <laughs> um, I think that, so once you start to see, I think especially when, you know, patriarchy, learning about patriarchy becomes like a searchlight. Like suddenly you're able to see things that you couldn't see before and you're able to see the way people come at you in a way that will come to you or interrelate with you in a way that you perhaps weren't alive to before. And when you feel like you're saturated with it, it can be very confronting. So I guess it's like, you know, when you're with a partner or someone that you feel close to, sometimes it's about like calling out every single moment that that happens and it's a, it's a, it's a process. And not just calling it out and saying like, no, 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 don't do that to me. That might be where it starts. But then, you know, best case scenario, if that person is at all open to it, is just asking like, why do you feel like you need to do that? Like why? Because essentially, so there's a, there's a real call-out culture that's happening at the moment. We're told to call it out and we're, and it's kind of can verge on cancel culture as well, you know. And there's one, um, one there was an, a question in the audience at Adelaide Writers Festival the other, um, the other week and it was a guy saying, similar question, like how do we, how do I talk to other guys who are expressing these sorts of things, entitlement or who are showing worrying signs of abuse, that sort of thing. And the only way that I felt like I could answer it was just to say that there's this ad that ran in Victoria and it was about there's these guys in a pub, right, and one guy's on the phone to his wife and he's clearly, he's clearly being abusive and there's all the red flags of, like, why didn't you get my dinner ready on time and you can never cook, et cetera, et cetera. And the other, like, guys at the table look really uncomfortable and they're, like, you know, they're the, they're the woke guys. And then and the guy <laughs> hangs up the phone and one of the friends says, like, mate, that's not on. And the guy goes, oh, what, you know, and then the other guy, another guy says, like, yeah, mate, that's not on. And then everyone goes, hmm. <laughs> and, um, and for me, I was like, oh, so that guy has just been humiliated by his friends for speaking that way to his wife. Gee, I wonder where he's going to take that humiliation yeah, home to yeah, tonight. Yeah. Um, and it's like, wow, so we're just reinforcing the way that men police each other yeah. by shaming each other. And we do the same thing. You know, we do the same thing to each other too, but men particularly. And so what I was saying, like, I'd love to see an ad where that happens. And then the guys sort of sit there and they go... Hey, man, that's pretty weird the way you're talking to your wife. Do you want to have a chat? That doesn't sound like you. Can we have a chat about it? Like, I don't, you know, this might be awkward, but... And see this trail off, dot, dot, dot. Oh, they're having a conversation, not just being like, <laughs> you're wrong, and now you need to feel like you're inherently bad and you're exiled. Um, and that's the sort of thing you want to be doing. So instead of just calling it out and being like, I can see your entitlement... Fuck off with your entitlement. Mm. You know, the, all that's doing is just shaming someone and making them feel like they're just locked into that persona. Whereas if we can, and this is not always possible, but if we can open up conversations about why they're being that way to you and the way that makes you feel, that's the future, right? That's what we're trying to create. Thank you. Another... <laughs> Hello, thanks so much. There were so many important things in that discussion. Um, can you guys talk a little bit about, particularly Jess perhaps, about some of the examples overseas where community and the justice system have come together? What are some of those interesting new ways of looking at it? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's there's one particular um, place in High Point, North Carolina, which t is um, using a strategy of focused deterrence, um, which is essentially, to put it in a real nutshell, it's essentially 
community and the sector, various sectors, domestic abuse sector, um, alcohol and drug sector, mental illness sector, getting together with the justice system um, and basically creating this system of visibility and accountability but also of help. So it's like you know, they, it was a particular strategy against domestic abuse. And the point was to make very clear to perpetrators from the very first call out where something had happened that had warranted police attention, that we now are watching you and, and we know what you're doing, but we want to help you. And here, here's the community we can put you in touch with. Do you have issues with trauma? Do you have issues with mental illness? Do you have employment issues? Whatever. Um, we want to help you. Let us help you. But if you don't take our help or if you don't change your behaviour, then all of the loopholes in this justice system that you used to exploit are now closing. So this city of High Point made domestic abuse the number one public safety threat. And everyone from the prosecutor to the FBI to the federal marshals to everyone was put on notice and they had a particular sort of four categories of offenders and you reached a certain category because you defended a couple of times and you were now on the alert list of every sort of law enforcement agency in that city and there's, there was no way to flee because the federal marshals will have the, you alerted at border checks. The prosecutor had you um, your case fast-tracked. The FBI were willing to plant drugs or guns on you if they couldn't get you on a domestic abuse charge. Like, the kind of thing they were willing to do was so extreme because they just said, look, we know we can't catch you doing what you do because we, we the justice system is imperfect in the way we deal with domestic abuse. So if we hear from people around you that you are continuing to abuse and control your partner, we will use what we need to to put you away if you can't change your behaviour. And But the point is it's not just like, you know, we're going we're gonna to imprison you um, and, and scary, scary. It's like we believe in your rationality and that you can change and we're going to give you all the help in the world to do it. But don't think that if you don't change that we're going to keep letting you off the hook. Um, and they, their domestic homicide rate, um, I think it had gone from twice the national average to it cut by like over 60% um, and a, lot, a bunch of other rates they can actually measure um, reduced as well. So all the time, every time there is a strategy that works, it is localised, it is collaborative, it is based on very good data that you have to collect often from scratch because we have bugger all data on this. Um, and those are the factors that, get it, that make this work. But number one also is visibility, making this visible because behind closed doors is why it happens. Hi, I'm from Pakistan as well. Um, my question was, I mean, you and I obviously have a lot of privilege, one which makes me sit over here, you which makes you sit over there, write a book, you know. In my case, it was my brother and my father who really pushed me to be here. You know, the Women's March, I was reading on BBC Today, it really has a lot of people on edge. The comments are beyond vitriolic, they're just, they're disgusting. One complaint which has really stood out about the Orat March is the fact that people are saying that it is our privilege as educated, very well-off women who are writing all these slogans and everything. So how is this march helping the less privileged? Mm -hmm. And that is a question which I wonder as well. I don't agree with how they're going about it. It's beyond disgusting. But mm -hmm. it is a question like us with our privileges are marching. We go with our boyfriends, our partners, our husbands, our friends, wear whatever we want. How is this helping the less privileged who are 85% of the women in our country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, it's really interesting. Um, 
I saw a joke about it, which I thought was very funny, because there's a lot of um, men that you'll see turning around. And the women's marches in Pakistan have become bigger and bigger every year. It's incredible. But the outrage against them have also has also grown. And I saw this joke where this guy said, wow, I didn't realize all of us men were so interested in like equality and we're such like, you know, socialists that we're asking about like, oh, where are the less privileged people? Like, you don't give a shit about them the rest of the time. <laughs> but with this, you're saying, oh, it's just these elite women and this is, you know, what you're doing. Um, I think it's a really valid point, but I do think that, I don't think that men saying that is a valid point. I think it's, your point is valid. Um, I do really appreciate that every year the organizers for the marches have taken on those people who cannot either get transport to the marches, so they will organize stuff for them, who don't feel safe being over there. They will ask them, like, you know, what can we do to help this? They've been, they've gone around sort of working on it in a really concerted way to make sure that even if you cannot be present, in our manifesto, the things that we ask for, the things that we organize around, we're going to take your concerns on board. Because yes, like, you do have to be very privileged to be be able to go out there, um, you know, on a Sunday, like, go and march with these people in a place that may not be too safe now, as the outrage against these marches is growing. So I really appreciate that the organizers have tried to take on as many of those groups as possible, go door to door in a lot of different neighborhoods, and talk to the women and say, okay, well, this is what we're doing, and don't buy into the thing around it that it's just these elite women who are out there on the street. Like, come join us. We, from the practical, like, organizing transport, to the more sort of like, okay, if you can't be there, like, tell us, what would you like us to talk about? Doing so much sort of media stuff around it. But unfortunately, the thing that keeps coming out is, and I think a lot of that is to do with why are these women even here? Why are they allowed to be here on this street? And so the first thing to attack them for is their privilege and to say, well, you women don't know anything about real experience or these real lives of these people. I think it's just as valid, the things that they're saying, and unfortunately, the women who can't be there, the concerns that they have. But to attack people on it and to say, I'm going to dismiss what you're saying because you're really privileged, privileged enough to be out here, I don't think that's fair at all. We probably have time for one, maybe two questions if they're short um, to go, if you want to put your hand up. Hi. Um, so on the, the question before about um, how they did it in High Point in the States, um, how do you think we can go about overcoming these domestic violence issues when we have such a problem within our police force mm. of domestic violence? Is there, can you see any strategies about that? Because obviously power over is very much an issue with the police. 100%. Look, like in my absolute perfect world, we would have a network of police stations for women like they do in South America. Um, and what is... Uh, like, I think that, you know, you've got 85, 80 to 85% of sworn officers are men um, in, in the Australian police force. And there are men that do phenomenal work on domestic abuse and that do above and beyond give their mobile numbers out to victims, you know, like, I mean, really amazing men. And I don't mean to, like, sort of say that those, those men are not doing good work, but it's more that the actual total culture of policing is such that they have to be the exceptions. Um, and what in, in Argentina, for example, but all through South America and India, even and, and in Africa, but in, in, in South America where there'd been fascist dictatorships, they realised that, like, well, 
the police kind of, like, impregnated women and then kidnapped their babies and, like, you know, that's probably not going to be the people that these women want to call now when they're in trouble. Um, so they, they realised that policing had, to, for, the, for interpersonal violence, had to be completely different. And so they started this whole, um, this whole system of women's police stations. And what it is is they are primarily staffed by women but not entirely. They focus entirely on family violence. They don't, and, and fundamentally, and this is so important, they don't actually report to the Minister for Police. They have a reporting line that isn't entirely different. So they are not concerned with um, any other policing activity. They don't, in, in their the police stations, there aren't any cells. You know, it's just a house. It's often brightly painted um, or it might be a shop front. They have everything that a woman might need. They have um, childcare. Um, they have financial counsellors, legal help, um, uh, psychologists, and they have police. And when women go there, they tell their story, and it could be just that. They're starting to feel a bit uncomfortable and that something is wrong in their relationship. But so when they go there, they can say to the police, look, all I want you to do really is just to go around and talk to him or um, I want you to go and get him out of the house or I want you to arrest him because this is what he's done and the police will, will respond in kind. And what they found is that because you're not having to go to this really forbidding... I went for a working with children check the other day and I'm walking in there going, Jesus, this is, like, scary, walking into a big police station, grey, forbidding, they're behind glass... You go into this woman's police station, you're greeted at the door, your children are taken care of, you just tell them what's going on. And because of that, because there's no onus on you to go to court and do all the things the police say you've got to do to be a good victim, um, women are going earlier and they're going and that means that they're reporting earlier, which means either they are leaving their relationships earlier or that they're able to seek help earlier. And the domestic homicide rate where these women's police stations are present has like, it reduced 17% overall, um, but it reduced by 50% for, like, 18 to 26-year-olds or something. Because for younger women, instead of getting stuck and having children and doing everything that then leads on to this position of imprisonment, is um, they're able to get help. So I would love to say, it's like, why wouldn't we try something like that? And Larissa Waters is now backing that call as well. Um, like, we're in a parlous situation where people are not reporting, where you have 20% of victims who've experienced violence alive right now have reported to police. So, like, we are... This, the police response to this is actually not working, no matter how they try to do bit-by-bit -bit reforms. So why not just do something radical that is proven? I'm really glad you asked that because that was one of the questions I didn't get to ask. <laughs> um, we've got time for one more question, a, a quick-ish one, if, if possible. Um, talking about the link between the patriarchy and domestic violence, in Iceland where there is a, a much greater move to equality, do we see less domestic violence? No. Um, <laughs> no, and it's called the Nordic Paradox. In fact, across the Nordic countries, you actually see, in terms of incidents of physical interpersonal violence, a few percentage points higher than Australia. So it's about 30%. Um, and what some, like an Icelandic feminist actually has put that down to is it's like... Um, 
the anxiety that has been built, in, uh, that men are feeling around losing that position is generating a kind of backlash. And that backlash is not just happening in Nordic countries. Like, it's happening all over the world. Like, how did we get Trump? How did we get all these really, like, blatantly misogynistic patriarchal leaders who are in the ascendancy? Um, this is part of backlash we've seen happen over and over and over uh, throughout the 20th century. Um, so... I think the thing is when you get when you achieve better statistics in the gender inequality you know list as the Nordic countries have they're right at the top it doesn't necessarily mean that you have fundamentally changed culture um, so more women on boards you know all that sort of stuff you get the, the right numbers but have you actually fundamentally changed socialization have you have you changed what the what the society values does the does society still value power over does society still value control etc and that sort of stuff often is not dealt with in when when those sort of gender reforms are undergone in those countries. So um, they're certainly on the right track, but, yeah, I think that the idea that you get that in a generation is probably, you know, it's not going to happen. We know she's impressive, but she's just finished the panel with three seconds to go. That was actually <laughs> incredible. Um, thank you so much to both of you. That was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for listening. And please rate and review Ideas at the House in your favourite podcast app. You can also listen to more Sydney Opera House podcasts at sydneyoperahouse.com slash podcasts.